What's poppin' everybody? This is Logan Murdoch, and I'm here with my co-host for the Real Ones Podcast on the Ringer NBA show, the incomparable, the realist, the man who invented the pregame Red Bull snow cone, Raja Bell. Thank you, Logan. You're far too kind, sir. Did you know that the Ringer NBA show feed now has six podcasts a week? Six. Every Sunday, Big Waz has a different guest from the NBA world on weekends with Waz. And you can find me and Raja every Monday and Thursday on Real Ones, where we cover all the most interesting NBA storylines. On Tuesdays, J. Kyle Mann and Jonathan Charks discuss up-and-coming talent in college basketball and the NBA. And on Wednesdays, you can hear Justin Barrier, Rob Mahoney, and Big Waz discuss any and everything going on in the world of hoops. Man, and on Friday, Chris Ryan and Searich Sohi ask the big questions on the answer so head over to the ringer nba shows spotify page and take a listen there's so much to dive into and while you're there just go ahead and give us a follow too this episode is brought to you by mint mobile if you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages then listen to this for a limited time wireless plans from mint mobile are 15 dollars a month when you purchase a three-month plan that's unlimited talk text and data for 15 dollars a month wow right to get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line with a whole new appreciation for Jerry West, it's Andy Greenwald! That's true. That's both relevant <laughs> and true. I love it. Oh, Andy, what a glorious Monday in the United States of America where we're talking about so much popular culture. A supersized episode of The Watch today where we're talking about Winning Time, the new show on HBO about the Los Angeles Lakers in the 1980s. We're talking about The Dropout, the newest show on Hulu about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. I kind of feel like she's doing a little bit of a a Baltimore accident in that, but uh, we're going to get to that. And then the second half of the episode is dedicated to a supersized interview we did with Adam Scott, the star of Severance, and uh, seems like... He seems like he's been on this podcast before, but he hasn't. But we talked about Severance. We talked about Party Down. We talked about U2 and REM. It was a really expansive conversation among men in their 40s. So uh, (laughs) it's great to see you. Where do you want to start? What should we get into first? Well, I mean, this is so odd for us, Chris, because we have a veritable smorgasbord of just like relevant television content. I almost want to ask you what you had for dinner last night or what you had for breakfast today, but I won't. I'll resist I'll resist I made, it. I made lentil tacos last night. What? Yeah. yeah. How can you throw me a curveball? I was setting up to be like, we're going to stick to the script. I, did, I made, made a, l- a run to the Studio City Farmer's Market and picked up some, uh, some you know, blue corn tortillas and a really, really dope um, Serrano salsa that really has a kick. And I make okay. a little like crema with that and like some, some sour cream. And then we do lentils... Tortillas, little little like little Serrano sour cream. 
The lentils, I imagine, you don't make them soupy, or else they'd run right out of the tortilla. No, they're like they're the they're almost like a bean, like it's like a bean, in, like that kind of situation. This is fascinating, but also it is to me legitimately. <laughs> I think I has also, dozed off. There, but there is the reason, like a real like Irish man makes Mexican food once element. I know to you, like that. You, you did just describe a hot sauce mixed with sour cream as kind of a crema. That's called Columbusing. <laughs> but what's the Irish? Ver- it's called Pied Pipering. It's the Irish version of Columbusing. I know it's leprechauning. Yeah, I mean, like I was drawn to the Serrano <laughs> because it was green. And I felt comfortable. And then I thought I would add some dairy. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe a potato, just an entire potato. Chris, I, I was going to go at you a little bit for this, this wonderful, like just rustic, natural journeying you did. But then I realized yesterday was your 10-year anniversary of living in Los Angeles. Yeah. What better way to celebrate that iconic milestone than going to a farmer's market in the valley and, and kind and then of mastering Mexican food. Lakers exceptionalism. Yes. Yes. There's the segue. So, so let's get into this. So, with this yeah. show, so I sh- sh- as a programming note, we're going to talk about Winning Time episode one today. And then on Thursday, we're going to run my interview with Max Bornstein, who's the showrunner on the show. And we had a great chat um, about the making of the show and the pressure he felt. You know, uh, he's actually worked on several Godzilla movies, but in a lot of ways, this is... The biggest monster uh, a, movie? A different kind of monster movie. Yeah, it's because it's got a lot of stakeholders, uh, many of which have sort of you know, distance themselves publicly from the show itself, being the NBA, the bus family, et cetera. But this show comes from Max Bornstein. It comes from Jim Hecht, who's, uh, who kind of optioned the, or was the original sort of emissary to Jeff Perlman to, to adapt this book, uh, Jeff Perlman's Showtime book. And then, of course, it goes through the lens of Adam McKay, who directed the pilot. Jonah Hill actually directs the second episode. But you've got a lot of... Um, very strong creative voices involved with the show. And then you've got one of the most stacked casts um, in recent television history, I have to say, uh, in a lot of ways. So uh, I was at the Lakers on um, Saturday night, and it was very amusing to see uh, John C. Riley and Quincy Isaiah sitting courtside in what was either guerrilla marketing or one of the great trolls I've ever seen. <laughs> but having those guys at the game, at the Lakers-Warriors game, was really funny. Um, let's start broad strokes, Eddie. What did you think of the episode? Well, I actually, before we go broad, I have to ask you, because I was not a part of your interview with Max, did you ask him if you ever had a similar experience where like Godzilla refused to participate in his research process? <laughs> that's right. Because that piece of it is fascinating, right? Where they're like, like Mothra is like, that's not how it went down. Like Godzilla I was actually- some, some pending litigation about uh, logo copyrights. Yeah. yeah. And so like all the monsters are making their own version of the story. Yeah. You know, where they're actually, this is, there's something here. Okay, yes. So, as usual, I have kind of two takes about this. And there's the creative, and then there's the the place that it has in the marketplace. Um, let's start with the, the purely the creative. I went on a journey with this first episode, which I think probably everyone did, because it is breathless and covers an enormous amount of ground. I started a little bit resistant to it and ended up being more or less completely on board and excited for what's to come. I kind of relaxed into it and gave into it. I think that my initial hesitation came from the fact that it is extremely Adam McKay, and especially late period Adam McKay, which where he is both, uh, he is less comedian entertainer and more instructor in chief, right? And so there's a lot of it, which like breaking the fourth wall, explaining what this means, explaining who I am, explaining that Larry Bird was popular because he was white by flashing the word white on the screen. It's very heavy handed in its aesthetics from the beginning. 
But, and this is a tribute to everybody involved, and I think ultimately including McKay too, the more time you spend with it, and I'm being grandiose, I'm talking like 19 minutes spent with it, the more the absolute charisma and charm of these performers starts to come through. And you're like, there is very little to be upset about here. This is very, very, very pleasurable. It's about a lot of great actors having a lot of fun with a great era that we kind of either remember or we just sort of have weird, vague sepia tone nostalgia that makes it a celebration. I think uh, this show made me realize that I only now understand fandom. Okay, wow. Uh, I kind of talked a little bit about this with Max when, and you could hear us in our interview about it, but you know, you and I have chatted so much over the last few years about all these um, franchise stories coming to life, some of which featured characters that we've been thinking about for most of our, our existence, uh, doing things that we never thought we'd ever see them do before or again. And when those kinds of things happen, you know, I think sometimes you and I go along for the ride and sometimes we're like, yeah, but are we sure it's good? You know, oh, you mean like fictional characters? Yeah, like, when you see Luke and right. Baby Yoda doing something together, you're just like, I I can't tell like what this is doing to my my content receptors, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought I understood that sensation, and then I and then I saw this show, and I was like, I am almost completely unable to evaluate this critically because I'm so fucking excited to watch what the story is, yeah. and it it honestly could be like a single episode for every day of the like 1200 days of Lakers franchise. And I would just be like, fine, what did they do this day? <laughs> like yeah. what, what minor like draft argument did, did Jerry West and, and Jerry Buss have today? And, and how did Claire Rothman figure into it? And I, I just think that like watching these characters who in my mind, I guess I almost even underrated what a huge NBA fan I was because I was yeah. just like, Oh, Jason Clark's playing Jerry West, and John C. Riley is Jerry Buss, and there's Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and I just like my mind kind of just like turned into into silly putty. You know what I mean? Like, and even I have opinions about the aesthetics of it and like mm-hmm. the the filmmaking style uh, and the writing and everything like that. But ultimately, what I think is that they have found the show that like was was like a waiting to be made in this particular way where you were like, what if we could do a no holds barred yeah. balls to the wall show about a professional sport that actually had the real people and had the real names and the real events. And yeah, like I don't think this is going to be a historical document and I don't know necessarily whether or not, you know, they can manufacture enough inherent drama in the show. Although mm-hmm. I have watched a few episodes and I would say I'm still very, very much locked in. But really what it is, is like this feeling of watching this thing that I love so deeply come to life in a different way that I'm I'm like completely hooked, man. Yeah, I mean, we are marks for this content regardless. Um, but I do think it is worth noting there are a couple small miracles that occur here and they're relevant in terms of the conversation we've been having over the last few weeks about real-life stories being brought to the screen, either as miniseries or as ongoing series, uh, relevant to the conversation we're going to have momentarily about the dropout. And I think actually to circle back, it's probably why having someone with as strong an aesthetic footprint as Adam McKay was crucial here, because it does not feel like class. It does not feel like Wikipedia theater, Um, partly because the characters are truly so big and broad and really were that it almost beggars belief, but also because it is having fun. And I think that there's something really essential there to keep note of. Like, 
this whole project is joyful and exciting. And it clearly was for the people involved too. That's important. We've gotten so far away from that, particularly in terms of our like prestige hour-long dramas, that just to have a show that is enjoying itself this much feels like a break and makes you want to look forward to it and enjoy it. I think the other thing, though, is the casting of people, particularly John C. Riley at the top of the call sheet, who can play a cartoon and then make you feel for them. You know, he could play Popeye and you'd be like, what's the deal? Why does he love spinach so much? You know, it's not, it's not just, it's not just playing the notes of a swinging, you know, just a nouveau rich guy who decided to buy a team. There's pathos to it. And somehow there's heart to it. And then you get to the next level of it. And I want to make sure that we, we shout them out. You said that um, Quincy Isaiah was at the game last night. Quincy Isaiah plays Magic Johnson and um, I'm look- oh, and Solomon Hughes plays Kareem. Mm-hmm. This show doesn't work if you don't find these guys. And it is a huge credit to the casting director and to everyone else involved. They found people who are pl- not just plausible, but compelling as two of the most famous people, certainly for the sports world, if not the larger culture of the last 50 years, right? There's Quincy also like a- amazing. There's I would also shout out Devon Nixon, who's playing his father. Oh, yeah, He's right. playing Norm Nixon. And the moment that I'm actually referring to where I was kind of like, my soul is leaving my body is a scene where Magic Johnson plays one-on-one against Norm Nixon at Donald Sterling's house. And I was like, this is this is like yeah. dudes walking into Moss, Moss Eisley spaceport for me. Like, I was like, this is actually like, I, I think that like, I, I don't really know how to explain how that makes me feel in so much as like, well, this is why this is as good as X, Y, or Z other show. It's just like, I didn't think I would ever get to see something like this. And so it becomes like a very powerful thing when it plays on an almost like childlike or childlike kind of level of, I just want to be in this world stuff that you almost yeah. can't see some of the stuff that maybe is flawed about it. But I personally like the the things that are like a little bit broad about it, I think come from the show having to service two different constituency bases. So one right. is NBA freaks. You know, like Bill and House did a prestige TV podcast about it. Like, obviously, those guys are going to be looking at it from an eye, not only mm-hmm. of NBA fans, but people who grew up in that era. So you've got like, you know, people who will have like real solid opinions about Jack McKinney and and Pat Riley and all these people who we're going to see on the show. And then also, to not to put too fine a point on it, but like the Casey Bloises of the world where Casey Bloises, the head of HBO, did an interview with a Hollywood reporter and he was like, I've seen five basketball games and it's like, the show is still interesting to me, even though I could care less about Mm -hmm. the NBA. So how do you make something that will appeal to people who might not be basketball fans while also not making actual basketball fans feel like they're watching an entry level class? Well, I think that the key is, and this is what's key to the show's success. And also what I think is most noteworthy about it, honestly, is what it opens up, what it unlocks for HBO going forward is that the show is at once a, you know, they, and they clearly took the pains to take it seriously. McKay is a big basketball fan. And obviously, you know, as you said, it's based on a, on a book by Jeff Perlman. But the show is also Entourage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it also is absolute Los Angeles glamour escapism porn. And there's no shame in that. That was a very successful strategy for HBO. And I look at this show, and particularly I look at the cast list. And we can, you know, you've named a couple people. But it is, if you go to the Wikipedia page, it is two columns deep, right? Like, 
we've mentioned a lot of the big names, but there's also bigger names that just kind of show up sometimes. Sally like Field, here, yeah. Sally Field, Jason Siegel. Jason Siegel has a billboard here in LA and Hyperion for his appearance as Paul Westhead, which doesn't happen, right? In the first episode. <laughs> no. He's got a billboard. Lola Kirk, Tracy Letts, Julianne Nicholson, um, Jillian Jacobs, Wood Harris. Like it just goes on and on and on. And I think back to when watching the show, all the stuff that went down when um, AT&T bought HBO, and then they were announcing plans to, to, to develop a streaming service. And then there were those weird early demarcations between what was HBO and what was HBO Max. And there was a whole different programming team in charge of launching HBO Max. And I would talk to people in the industry who were like, well, I had a pitch meeting at HBO and I had a pitch meeting at HBO Max and they're both interested and they're like bidding against each other for similar projects. And the specter behind all of this was AT&T and John Stanky being like, we bought this company to compete with Netflix, the Netflixes of the world. So we're going to have to ramp this up. Like it's cute that you want it to be like this crown jewel curation machine for Sunday nights, but like we need more content. Mm -hmm. And since that happened, a lot of other things have happened. Discovery bought the whole thing and Casey consolidated power over both the streamer and the network, which probably makes a lot more sense um, going forward. But regardless, this to me is the show that unlocks the future of HBO in that it is HBO's version of a mass market popcorn show. They successfully HBO'd something that in lesser hands, yes, well, not just the NBA, yeah. but like something that is massively popular that is, you know, that, that, that there's a version of this show that exists on almost any other network. Remember when ESPN did like Bronx is Burning, right? Mm -hmm. Or like a network could have taken a swing at this, a broadcast network. What makes it HBO is the Adam McKay footprint. It's the just absolute ridiculous Rolodex of stars that were like, yeah, sure, I'll do a couple days on that. Um, and it's just the full court press, pardon the pun, of making this the absolute most version of it that it can be. And in so doing, maybe it's the best version too. But now going forward, oh, this is an HBO show, even though it feels like it's HBO Max or Hulu, but it's HBO now. And this has changed the conversation, right, for them, I think, in a way that is probably really strong for a brand that didn't really need the help because we've been talking about them nonstop for six months. So uh, you mentioned the filmmaking. It's become, uh, it, ever since the show aired on Sunday and in a lot of the reviews I've read, there's been a lot of debate about the aesthetic of, of the way the show looks and feels. And mm -hmm. obviously it's, you know, it's employing multiple different film stocks. It sometimes switches to like Betamax or VHS yep. style uh, video camera shooting, especially in the opening scene uh, with Magic Johnson finding out um, that he was HIV positive. Um, you know, there's fourth wall breaking, there's text overlaid, there's inside jokes that would be, or or references that would be more of a 2022 perspective mm -hmm. put on to an early 80s uh, storyline. And I think that, you know, I can understand why some people might be turned off by it for sure. It's definitely a lot and it kind of asks you to submit to the filmmaking, which I, I personally always enjoy when, when, when filmmakers are very like dominant over the viewer, you know, uh, not always, but I do, you know, with the exception of like some Snyder stuff, like I, I tend to like very... <laughs> Uh, I believe you have said before on this microphone that you like to be dominated. Yeah, no, but I just mean sense. like, I think that I, I would always rather see what somebody's POV is in their like most unfiltered, unadulterated way. I, I have plenty of time for like the invisible direction of television shows. And I'm sure we're going to talk more about that going forward. But I liked that. And I also think that the filmmaking in its own way needs to manufacture some story because ultimately 
this is a account of some pretty boring stuff. It's a lot of phone calls. It's a lot of backroom politicking. They haven't even started training camp yet in this first episode. You know, like they just draft magic. And so I don't think that there's like on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, this isn't the West Wing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they have to like create some energy here. And to borrow a phrase from another famous John C. Riley performance, it's like, I want to go fast, daddy. Like I want, I want to create some like stuff happening in this show that maybe will compensate for the fact that you've essentially got not a lot of inherent drama in it. You right. know, they're manufacturing this stuff. Look, this is just to follow. I mean, I, I, I think it's the great point to make. And, and I think, again, this is the kind of HBOification of a genre that is in all our other conversations is starting to feel a little played out. It begins with the most interesting thing that's awaiting the characters in the future. You know, it is hemmed in absolutely by the nature of our shared reality. Like, we know that they won a lot of championships and that it ended at a certain point. Um, that puts a little bit of a... I thought it ended, but then I guess LeBron scored... What did he score? 56 the other night? 56, so maybe it didn't, yeah. Maybe it didn't end. But, um, and yet, all of the other things that are just bubbling and percolating and the energy and the... the caffeine or maybe things stronger than caffeine energy that's shot through this show carries it. Mm-hmm. And does it carry it, you know, indefinitely? Unclear. Like already this was, I guess, announced as a miniseries, but then it's like, well, no, maybe we can just keep this going or maybe we can apply this formula to other sports and things. I mean, I mean they're I'm sure speculating that they could adapt the the sequel, which was more about the Shaq Kobe era. Yep. Yeah. And at this point, why not? And I think maybe, I mean, I, I we should keep, to the degree that we keep the conversation separate, we we should, but I there are interesting overlaps between this and the dropout, which I think, winning time aside, is absolutely, to my taste, the best of this current spate of podcasts ripped from the headlines. Sure. So let's get into the dropout then. Stories. But yeah. it's still but it, you know, but has some clear limitations as well. So um dropout has it's, I was about to say has an interesting backstory. It also has <laughs> the same backstory as many, many other shows that we've been talking about recently in that it is a it tells the story of a real event. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes, who uh, Chris's favorite, favorite uh, imitation to do, maybe perhaps not on mic, but, you know, I'll let him decide what he wants to share. I just the, like doing people. Elizabeth Holmes talking about everyday stuff. Yeah, right. Like, it's going to be really difficult to uh, make a left across Olympic here. <laughs> it just kills me. It's great stuff. Um, so Elizabeth Holmes, billionaire genius, uh, disruptor who had a company called Theranos that was, uh, purportedly able to run hundreds of blood tests on a single drop of blood, thus democratizing the healthcare system. And the only problem was it completely didn't work and never did. And there was a ABC news podcast called the dropout that told the story relatively quickly, almost in real time, because I think, you know, the early, the, the end of this story as on the screen, as shown on the screen, is 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, she's getting and then, de- de- deposed, right? She, well, she's being deposed, and but the show, it's so, and, and then of course, you know, Hulu buys the rights to the podcast, and let's put it in development, and let's make a show which is not dissimilar to what happened with the New York Magazine article that spawned Inventing Anna. Um, the other stories we have, whether on like Super Pump, the Uber show, or the, the various WeWork shows that are in that are in in the pipeline, the Tiger King shows, plural. What's Fascinating to me about this show is it has a is that when it was announced as a series, it was a pretty spicy meatball because it was sold to Hulu with 
two of the industry's best Liz's attached. Liz Merriweather, who um, created New Earl and was on this podcast at least once to talk about it, twice, I think. And Liz Hanna, friend of the pod, who was on this show to talk about The Post and has worked for uh, worked on Mindhunter and a bunch of other things as well. Interesting marriage between someone known for TV comedies and someone who had been writing either features or shows about serial killers. And Kate McKinnon was announced as the star. So immediately you're like, well, this is going to be a satire. During the show's long gestation, Kate McKinnon drops out. Amanda Seyfried, fresh off her Oscar nomination for Mank, jumps in. And the show we are watching, and now I've watched two episodes um, before getting into the conversation about it. I think they put three up, right? This is not a comedy. It's their moments of levity, but it is absolutely not a comedy. And I think, fascinatingly, it's all the better for it. So I'm, I would love to know the backstory of this. But to me, it's, it's an interesting case study in getting these things kind of right. And I, I guess I'm trying to figure out in real time as we talk about it, because you and I haven't talked about the show at all yet, um, as opposed to the other shows where we sort of do test podcasts about, you know, for hours before we tell Kai, okay, we're ready. This is game-tested material. Is this just naturally a more interesting story? Because it's incredibly rich, um, both in terms of what it says about uh, millennial, like we all deserve a chance to be the very best culture, but also tech bro culture and um, how challenging it would be to be a woman following the script of the famous, like Steve Jobs, I'm going to drop out and create something worth a billion dollars out of my garage narrative. Is this story just incredibly fascinating on its own merits, or is it a combination of the story, the storytellers, and particularly Amanda Seyfried, who I think is incredible in this? I am yeah. a huge, huge, huge fan of her performance, and maybe maybe that's the, the best place to start. I think the crucial thing is that it's a character study. So I was just talking with Joanna on the Prestige Pod about Super Pumped, which I have a lot of mm -hmm. time for because I find it very entertaining, and I like looking at Kyle Chandler wearing a Pixies t-shirt. But it's... Uh, Ultimately, like super, super pumped is kind of more in the weeds of the um, three card Monty game of financing and regulation breaking that went into the rise of Uber. And I, I would imagine the fall of Kalanick by the time we get to the end of the season. And while some of that is in the dropout, while you can see Elizabeth, the Elizabeth Holmes character kind of coming to terms with the catch 22 of. I need funding to do my research, but I can't do my, you know, but I can't sell this thing without finishing my research. So mm -hmm. it's like essentially the, the beast that she has to feed is sort of part of what creates the monster. That being said, mm -hmm. I find this just like this portrait of Holmes specifically as done by the creators and, and Seyfried, like to be completely captivating. Yeah. And I don't know, you know, you, Orden, there, when when Amanda Seyfried first walks in, she's like a high school student. I was a little bit like, are they really going to try and pull this off? You know, like, and A, they do. B, once she gets to school, like to college and starts like finding her way through the world, it just becomes a completely harrowing and totally committed performance. And I find it to be a really interesting living in the gray area portrait of this person who wasn't altogether good and turned bad or wasn't always bad and found somebody to believe otherwise. It's like, was just a little bit off and turned that being just a little bit off into 
like a selling point until it was obviously a negative. And I, I just watching her kind of find her way through this this personality of this person who's obviously just like doesn't quite feel right in the world, mm-hmm. but can also put on like a human skin suit and 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 sort of interact with it is just amazing. Yeah, I think that, and, and again, this is just maybe maybe this isn't even worth mentioning or exploring too much, but it, it remains a frustration to me that we have these shows that are in this right sandbox of some of the more fascinating um, trends or movements in American culture, not just pop culture over the last few years. Like to your point, this idea of embracing and trying to understand and articulate people's behaviors or their personalities, you know, on a larger spectrum of, and I use that word intentionally of, of how they perceive the world and interact with it. Well, at the same time, we're coming off of this insane bender of like 10 years where, or 20 years, or maybe 2000 years, if you are a woman of lionizing a certain kind of absolute attitude-based bravado, right? That like Steve Jobs being like, no, I will bend history and then winning, right? Or um, the Wolf of Wall Street type of like, you, my charisma is what matters. And we see this in this show early on too, in the second episode, where despite having a machine that might even be getting worse, uh, Theranos begins to succeed because Elizabeth Holmes finds her ability to bullshit bullshitters. Mm-hmm. You know, that she can go on a yacht with Larry Ellison, which is an incredible scene in the second episode, and succeed in that. And so when I say frustrated with that, it's because the nature of an eight-episode streaming miniseries based on facts doesn't really allow, I think, artists the full expression of communicating the significance of something. It's really just telling, ultimately, and it can try to on the margins, but ultimately it's just telling us a story that has a already established boundary. So I kind of wish, and I'm still waiting for like the great movie from this era, and maybe maybe I've missed it. Maybe Sean Fennessy will come on and tell us about it or tell us the ones to look for coming forward. But that said, a phenomenal performance like Amanda Seyfried's really makes up for a lot of it. That scene yeah. I'm talking about in the second episode on the yacht hits all of the predicted notes of, you know, is pantomiming Larry Ellison. They're yelling about, give me the fucking money. But Seyfried is so odd in her skin in that scene that we understand all the subtext that I'm dying to see. Yeah, the big scene for me was when she uh, is dancing in her room at a poster of Steve Jobs. So good. And it's like she's just trying to will her unarticulated dream into existence by almost like throwing like laser beams from her hands at this poster of a guy. And she's just like, I just want this so badly. And it is a really beautiful portrait of that moment in your life when you feel like you've got everything Mm -hmm. is bursting out of you in your late teens and early 20s and you just want somebody or something to acknowledge your importance and give you a sense of purpose in your life. And it's it's just a perfect little encapsulation of that feeling that I think is very universal. And that's the thing is that I don't really personally care that much about the Elizabeth Holmes story, nor do I care about the accuracy of winning time in relation to so like, this is what happened. This is Jerry West actually was like of two minds of the whether to draft Magic Johnson. I want it to be interesting TV and yeah. everything else is secondary. And that's the thing about the dropout is like, you know, this this is a possibly overcovered phenomenon now. But like this idea of this person is this character is really, really fascinating to me. I agree. And I think Michael Showalter directed at least the first few episodes did a really mm-hmm. good job, particularly in the opening episode of Like Adam McKay and Winning Time, 
putting some style behind it, putting a stamp on it, giving us a sense through 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 pacing and cutting of what this is going to feel like or what it ought to feel like. Also, phenomenal needle drops throughout. Why controlled by yeah, 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 drops in the pilot, and I levitated just a little bit off oh, of the, the earth. W- the wolf parade drop. That's oh, great. It's yeah. great too. Like, um, I but I love the point that you just made about the show having something quite insightful to say about a very particular youthful moment, but what it means in this world mm-hmm. where everything feels possible because you can DM the people you want to be and you see their daily lives. And it's not, you know, I think we've talked about this, whether on the podcast or in other interviews or conversations with people like growing up, like we liked to read entertainment weekly magazine, but I don't think we knew how people became writers for TV shows. Right. That wasn't understandable, let alone there wasn't like a breadcrumb trail. And there's something that's so essential about youth where you want something more than you've ever wanted anything in your life, but you don't have the perspective yet to realize that maybe you don't even know what you want. Like even now, if I ever talk to people who are graduating college and they want a career in media or they want to like write for the screen and they want the cheat code. I mean, that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't mean to like embarrass I'm people. I'm still who waiting feel that. for you to tell me this. Yeah. Well, that's the chicken code. And <laughs> I have, as discussed, given you an email with all of my best marinades. And all of a sudden you're back making lentil tacos and we'll take this off air. But like, you, you know, there actually is no answer to that because you may have written like nine spec scripts from your college dorm room, which is awesome. But it doesn't mean that anyone is going to make them at 22 or that they should, right? Like there's no, there's no, <laughs> and Elizabeth Holmes didn't have a voice being like, maybe enjoy college or try mm-hmm. to, or maybe live a life. Oh, she, I mean, like in the show yourself. she does. In the show there are people who she, are just like, go break some hearts, like go, go get out of this thing, you know? But I think that that's um, the only thing that trips me up. And, and this is a show I'm into. I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch the series. I'm, I'm very interested in it. And it's an, it's an enjoyable watch. And, and like with winning time, it's one of those things where like, if it ever starts to drag, you just look down the cast list and it's like Bill Irwin and, and Willie Macy and Laurie Metcalf and Stephen Fry hanging around. And Alan Ruck is going to show up eventually. Um, Michaela Watkins, an incredible small, incredible job on the smaller parts too. Like this actor, um, James Hiroyuki Lau, who plays Edmund Koo, who's an engineer, just owns the second episode with just a really beautiful, noteworthy performance that elevates the thing entirely. But I keep bumping up, and I think this is just the nature of what TV is now, or this type of TV, around the limitations of the historical record. Because, for example, in the first episode of The Dropout, we meet Elizabeth we get the sense of the momentum and who she is and Steve Jobs' poster on the wall. And then she goes to a exchange program in China where she meets Naveen Andrews, who people, of course, know and love on Lost as one of the key players in the Elizabeth Holmes story as Sonny Balwani, her sort of boyfriend slash, I mean, it gets complicated, but an older man who she meets on this exchange program. And then she goes to college. And there she meets Bill Irwin's professor, who is like, uh, impressed by her and also has been burned by not investing in students in the past. In Yahoo, Stan- yeah. Like the yeah. Yahoo guys were his students at Stanford. And this is accurate. This is what happened. And it leads to some interesting places. But there's a part of me that's like the Hollywood brain part that's like, these two older male characters are redundant. Like, yeah, right. there, sh- there should be one who challenges her, but also wants to invest and piggyback on her. And like, that would be clearer and then we could be saying more emotionally in the storytelling, but we have to service reality. And I mm-hmm. think that's always going to be the that's always going to be the bar for me that is hard to 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 cross for these types of shows, 
where they can be incredibly well done, incredibly entertaining, incredibly worthwhile, but they almost don't graduate to like high art because they are dragged down by the anchor of Wikipedia. The 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 anchor of Wikipedia is where I always feel like we end these pods these days. Mm, it's true. <laughs> Deep in the footnotes. Um, well, we can wrap it up there. We'll continue to talk about the dropout intermittently throughout the season. Like I said, we've got Max Bornstein on Thursday, and we'll do some other stuff on Thursday. But now let's get into our interview with Adam Scott. Do you think it's worth setting up? I mean, it's a pretty extensive interview. Yeah, no. I mean, we talked to Adam about um, how he got into the, involved in the project, how Ben Stiller approached him about Severance. We... I guess talk lightly about the show with spoilers through four. Mm-hmm. You and I have not talked about episode four on the pod. Maybe we'll we'll get to it later in the week or next week. Um, so I, I don't think it's particularly spoiler heavy. It's a lot about Adam's process. Um, also not really spoilery about Party Down, other than the fact that he's making it again and is excited about it. Also not very um, spoilery about Eastbound and Down. Which was which was crucial to us. I feel like I my voice like got several pitches higher when I started talking about you. Be, between Adam and Danny McBride, what do you think we're searching for when we talk to these people who are responsible for some of the greatest comedic scenes of our adult lives? Because I feel like we want them to be like, yes, Padawan, like you were right, or just like, would you like me to now do? I think we want. Them. Yeah, we gotta get Ike Barinholtz on just to do Dochenko for like five minutes. I think that's doable, but no, but Adam was, Adam was great. Like he's a, he's a listener of the podcast. It was great to have the chance to talk to him and our severance coverage will, will go on. And this is sort of like bonus because we don't really get into the episodes, but we talk about how they made it. And I found that really interesting. Okay. So, uh, Adam Scott coming up next, then we'll do top chef. We've got Max Bornstein. We'll do some other stuff on Thursday. Kai McMullen is our producer. We'll talk to you guys later in the week. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm thrown for a loop because Chris, who usually does the introductions, <laughs> has thrown to me on a punchy Monday. Oh, but I'm thrilled Jesus. because this is, um, this is exciting. This is long overdue, I feel. We are joined today by one of our favorite actors. You know him from many things, from Parks and Recreation to our personal favorite guest appearances on Eastbound and Down to now leading Apple TV's great new drama series, Severance. Adam Scott, live from his closet. Thank you for joining The Watch. You guys, I'm such a huge fan of this uh, of this show. This is weird, actually, being on it. 
you are incredibly in a good way. This. Thank you for having me. I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Sorry. It, 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 it might get weirder. Um, Adam, I feel like it's very rare error. There are only two people who have ever, we've ever been nervous about approaching publicly who then were very nice to us and at least pretended to know who we were. One was our frequent guest, Jason Mansukas, and the other one was you. Yeah. And we're still a little stunned that you've been listening. What do you mean approach publicly? <laughs> Well, the, I feel like the time I saw you Oh, you mean you approach to be on the show? Yes. Yeah. No, but see, oh, okay. I, when, we, when we've seen each other out in the world, um, yeah. you know, at the, at the high-flying Los Angeles events that all three of us attend. <laughs> That's right. But also, I always kind of focus in on you, Andy, because you're one of the people I can talk to about, like, 80s college rock. <laughs> yes, which you know? we have. And there aren't a lot of them left. Yeah, we're, it's a dying breed. Is, is it because we're dying? Yeah. <laughs> Are we aging out? And also that you guys were like, did you guys both work at Spin Magazine, Chris? I feel like you worked at Spin. Yeah, I was a writer Andy. for it, but Andy actually worked there. Yeah. Spin, I mean, there's nothing cool. Like that was my fantasy, like alternative career was being a rock journalist or music journalist. It's just for, you know, Spin, Rolling Stone, especially like in the 80s, 90s and Rolling Stone. Uh, so you I guys were like you living man, out You made the dream. right choice. <laughs> it, it, really, it really worked out better for you. <laughs> yeah, I guess Spin Magazine isn't really a thing anymore, is it? I think digital, it's still like a digital it publication, okay, but it's good, not, good. It's not uh, we're not getting hard copies anymore. Adam, we, we want to talk no. to you about a bunch of different things, but we should probably do some severance stuff off the top. Um, sure. I wanted to ask, because Andy and I, when we were discussing the show in the last couple of weeks, we were, you know, he had mentioned that Dan Erickson's scripts were like the 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 project was like something of like a kind of like I guess a hot property. I mean, it was that the, the, there was some, a lot of talk about like, oh, this is a really cool uh -huh. idea. When did you get involved? And did you were you brought into it knowing like this is like kind of like a, a very touted property or a touted idea? Well, I first heard of it from Ben Stiller. He just called me. Uh, uh, it was January 2017. He called and just kind of told me the elevator pitch, so to speak, of of uh, of Severance. And, you know, just a few sentences. Just basically told me the hook of the show, the basic idea of of bifurcating your your mind and your memories. And so he just sort of told me this early on, this sort of pitch of the thing. It just sort of stuck in my mind because it sounded. Obviously, it sounds cool and fun, and if Ben wanted to direct it, that would make it even better. And then it was just, a, it was like a couple years later that it actually sort of came around and I was actually able to read anything. And my immediate reaction when I, when I was reading them was, this is something that I want, that I would want to watch. This is mm -hmm. exactly the thing that the the stuff I like as an audience member and the kind of thing that that I would hope and dream to to be in but at that point didn't really feel like I was being thought of for anything like that but it is precisely the sort of thing I had been trying to steer towards and sort of felt like if I am able to actually land this and 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 nail down this job it will be the thing that i've been spending my career thus far sort of earning you know getting to do something like this 
Is that because of just on a, just in terms of the the position on the call sheet, or is it also related to the fact that um, you know, in, in many ways, up until now, I, your career to a degree has been slightly severed? Because I know that you, to coin a phrase, um, you know, are, are yeah. a, a very talented and skilled dramatic actor, and and got into the business working in that side of things, and then have had this really fun and entertaining detour almost into comedy. Uh, although obviously, there's always elements of both in every performance you give. Reading these scripts, I mean, my which I had the opportunity to do, my my takeaway was exactly yours. I can't wait to watch this. And then B, how do you do both? How do you walk this tightrope? And I wonder if if that was one of the things that you responded to as well, just on a personal and professional level. Yeah, uh, w- when Parks and Rec ended, I definitely wanted to try and find stuff that was in that other lane a little bit, just to sort of vary it up. Uh, a bit and nothing against anyone who worked on hot tub time machine too, but I felt that that was, you know, maybe not the direction I wanted to continue in. And that was a byproduct doing that it, by the way, which was a blast. And I love those guys and Steve pink and, you know, great group of people, so much fun. But um, it was sort of a byproduct of this long road I'd been on where I felt like I couldn't stop. I didn't want to have a summer break where I was not working and not really thinking about, not really taking everything into consideration and just jumping at things to just that, that would keep me on the treadmill, so to speak. And so after Parks ended, I thought I, I should maybe pump the brakes a little bit and really, really consider what it was I was doing. And I wanted to try and find things that were a little more uh, dramatic or, or or whatever. And, you know, Big Little Lies was uh, certainly a detour in that direction. Uh, sorry, Andy, I think your question was more like, why was this the thing that I felt was what I was kind of working towards this whole time or trying to earn this whole time? Is that right? I, no, I think you got it. I mean, I, I just, and, and, you know, turning to the show itself, I, one of the things that I love about it is the, the challenges that you and the other actors get to rise to, which is that you are basically yeah. playing two different people, you know, uh, often in the same episode and flexing and using different muscles and surprising combinations of muscles. You know, I mean, there's to go from the kind of, you know, the, the, the drop ceiling fluorescent light inanity of some of the workplace stuff to an episode where you are then, you know, having to revisit the site of where your, uh, your, your wife, your late wife has died in an accident. I mean, it's asking a lot of you as a performer, which I feel like is, must be exciting and challenging. Yeah, that is, it was, um, it was hard. (laughs) I, I mean, it was, it was really fun and fulfilling, but, but, you know, it was a, it was a challenge and, you know, it, it took a while to make it, you know, you know, as you, you can see, it's it's uh, very deliberate and beautifully shot, and you know, so it it's all um, really composed and and so from an acting point of view, yeah, it was. I think it was really important to us, to to uh, Ben and Dan and I, that that the two different versions of Mark that it feel like one guy, that it feel like, because, you know, you don't want to, as an actor, your instinct is to 
really kind of um, lean in and like, you know, I, I want this one of them to have a mustache and a yeah. fedora and the other, you know, uh, but this needed to feel like just different one guy, different parts of one guy, different halves almost, but the same person and they share physiologically, they share emotions. They just don't know how to name or place the things they carry over to each other, but they do affect each other because they're sharing not only a body, but an entire menu of, of feelings. But they've had different experiences, which is one of the things that is fun yeah. to watch unfold. I mean, we're, we're, we'll be airing this interview after the fourth episode is up, and there's just oh, a cool. great okay. moment when Mark um, sees his brother-in-law's book, uh, when Mark's yeah. uh, Innie sees it, and it's like, this is fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> this is really emotional and helpful. But the, the thing you're you know? saying, Adam, is really interesting, because like, it's not like he goes to work and becomes Bob Hope. It's like, there is like right. a lightness to the Innie, you know, like where you can tell he's left something in that elevator that... That's right. Hangs over him the entire time he's outside. And that's why maybe it's why he's drinking and can't really like relate to other people the way he would want to be. But then when he's in the office, it's not like he's like the class clown or anything. Although there is elements of that stuff with Petey. It's, it's like you just sort of have left something at the door. And that, that's a very, I I wonder, you know, I always hear about like, well, what's actable about that, but like, how do you sort of translate emotional sort of ideas like that into performance? Yeah, th- that was sort of the the challenge, and, and and kind of what we sort of settled on is it was just sort of a, a matter of addition and subtraction, right? Like, uh, because also we were going back and forth sometimes in the same day. We we shot the whole season at once, so it, like a big movie, so you're jumping all over the place, and so it was important just to map out where. Where not just where we were as far as which innie or outie we were we were shooting at any given time, but also where they were in the story because they each have a uh, an arc and they're different arcs and they respond to the, those things that happen to them uh, differently. And also, you know, the innie is for all intents and purposes like two and a half years old, mm-hmm. and then the outie has forty odd years of of uh, all the stuff that goes along with living a full life of sorrow and joy and uh, everything. Uh, So it was a matter of what to take away for the innie and, and what to add, what, what are the things that that one has that the Audi uh, doesn't. You, you alluded Adam to the fact that this was a long process. You saw the scripts or heard about the idea. That's five years ago now already. I wonder what the experience was like for you as it began to ramp up towards production when the full weight of what Apple can bring to it and what Ben brings to it and what all of, you know, and what the yeah. scripts brought to it, where suddenly it's an exciting project that Ben's going to direct. And then all of a sudden it's John Turturro and, and Patricia Arquette and Christopher Walken. And you have how many yeah. days to shoot it and you're on location. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful composed production. And I, and I wonder what that was like just walking onto those sets with these people around you to play with. Yeah, Jessica Lee Gagne, the DP, genius, um, certainly incredible. And she shot Dana Moore as well, which couldn't be more different and feels like it's occurring, you know, it's unfolding uh, as you watch it in in a completely different way than than Severance does. Um, It was uh, really kind of overwhelmed the scale of it, you know, because I, I was here in Los Angeles and we shot it in New York. So I've been talking to Ben 
we were supposed to start in March or April 2020, and uh, you know, obviously we're delayed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning. So um, Rudy Gobert. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it ended up being delayed six months, and um, and so you know he'd been sending me photos of of the sets as they were being built, you know everything. But then once you're there and you're actually, uh, it's in front of you, and you know you walk in and see these hallways that they'd built, endless white hallways for us to walk down. Uh, they're all there on stage and you actually have to walk through them to get to the office set, which is in the middle of this labyrinth of white hallways, which they're always moving around depending on what we were shooting. So no joke, I would get lost like 80% of the time uh, <laughs> trying to get to uh, to the set. Um, yeah, and and just the the sheer uh, scale of it um, was overwhelming and the precision of it was overwhelming. And that all sort of folds into just Ben and how, as a director, he's someone that you can just trust 100% and sort of give over to what it is you're doing. Because usually, for me anyway, as an actor, I always have like, a roaming third eye on my performance just kind of to protect myself and to just be a judge of whether something's working or not. Obviously, you're always doing that. But for this, I kind of felt like in order to really properly um, do this, I would need to kind of let go of that a bit. And, um, and with Ben, I felt... 100% safe doing that because I trust his taste implicitly, but also know how how meticulous he is and nothing will get by him. Any moments that seem false or whatever, whether it be the acting or the sets or the, the cinematography, whatever, he has a 360 degree eye on absolutely everything. And so for me, it was... Uh, it was such a relief that I could just let go and not worry about any of that stuff and just trust him. I did want to ask about Ben's direction because I think there, there are probably, and you know this far better than we do, many ways to be a good and successful director. Um, I, I'm curious about how he's able to, at least you know, on the day, in the moment, be both megalomaniacal and controlling of everything and aware of every detail um, while sculpting the larger product, the larger forest, but also be there with you as a tree uh, and get the emotional truth of it. I think that, you know, in the wrong hands, a project like this could have gone off the rails of whimsy or been suffocated by the conceit of it. And at least, you know, in the early going, what's been remarkable about it is that tightrope. You know, there, there are human beings trapped in the maze. That's right. It could have either gotten completely lost in the aesthetic and have no soul. Yes. Or the reverse and it just be a wall of emotion and you don't feel the world uh, yeah. outside of that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he had it all um, locked in. And uh, just from from a point of view of the actors, you know, he, he's obviously an actor and a really, really good one. And I'm one of the people urging him to get back to it. Um, uh, 
I think Brad Status. Did you have you guys seen the yeah. Mike White? Yeah, yeah. I just love that. I've seen it a few times. It's such a moving movie and performance, and he's he's so so great. And uh, you know, it's often what's great about having an an actor uh, direct. You know, Ken Marino just directed a Party Down episode last week, and it's just lovely having an actor. Uh, there, uh, a director there that understands what the actors are uh, are going through and how to talk to them. Um, but with this specifically, it it was incredibly important that he be able to to jump in there and and say the right thing and not lean in too. Far. He knew exactly how to handle, and it was essential. So I was looking at going, like looking through the your filmography, Adam, and it was, you've obviously been in some remarkable stuff, but I was wondering whether or not you've ever been in something as visually exacting as this, um, where your performance needs to kind of geometrically line up with a composition. And, you know, you, right. you hear all these stories about like Fincher shooting something and being like, a whole take will go by and Fincher will come out towards an actor and then turn and move an ashtray two inches and be like, go again. And I was curious whether or not, what kind of impact that has on somebody like you, who I think has been in a lot of stuff where you're allowed to be very naturalistic or maybe the camera's just going. Like loose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And like, I imagine you're like, no man, you got to move the frame one centimeter farther to the left here. You know, like with when you're holding the picture frames. Yeah. Uh, It's such a, such a good question because that was when I got there, we were talking about the moment I kind of got to New York, like a month. We started shooting the day after the election, by the way. And for the first week, I, when it looked like Trump was going to win, like <laughs> the night of the election, I was like, I have to get up at four thirty. I am going to bed. So I had a media blackout from going to bed that night till the morning they announced Biden one, I finally decided, okay, fuck it. I'm going to watch CNN because I needed to focus on this fucking show. Like <laughs> I was, I was about to dive into this thing and I had to just, I could not be distracted by the uh, election and the fact that I think particularly because it did not look good when I went to bed and I just couldn't handle those five days. If that was happening, I just didn't want to think about it. Um, that's the focus I was trying to maintain uh, that first week. So anyway, I got there a month before we started shooting. And from the moment I walked in there and saw the scale of the sets and the precision of the pro, you know, he's bringing me through and showing me all of the lumen, the world of lumen and how it's reflected in the props and the wardrobe, every, every thing. I was like, oh, okay and made a decision to just give myself over to to that, give myself over to the precision of mm-hmm. this world and the precision of, 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 of making this show and having not really, as far as I can remember, be, having been a part of something like that before, I decided I am going to just, like I said, give over to it and, uh, and kind of give myself over to Ben and what he wants to to do here because I love watching this shit. I've just never been in one of something like this. Like I love my favorite thing in Social Network, which is one of my favorite movies 
uh, the last several years. My my favorite shot of the movie is the twins eating burgers in that famous <laughs> burger place, right? And it's one shot. I, I don't think that scene is longer than 12 seconds long, yeah. right? But they have this place teeming with details. There are people, there's movement. I mean, the work it took to get that shot, I could only imagine. And that level of detail is in every scene of that movie. And that's something I I really appreciate is, is looking and seeing that there are people making stuff who still like care so much. That's something I do love about Ben is he just gives a shit so hard. Yeah. <laughs> like he really cares and wants things to be great. That's and so funny that you mentioned that social network scene. I was just watching that. And then right after that was on cable, I was watching the, um, the untouchables, the, uh, the De Palma oh, yeah. Capone movie. And yeah. at the end of that movie, when Capone gets found guilty, there's like this operatic Spoiler, uh, by the way. Dolly, sorry about that. <laughs> dolly shot of the courtroom where like everything chaos is just like yes. gone off. Cause like, and you can f- see that every single extra in the courtroom has a job. Like they're not just like yelling olives, olives. They're That's like, right. they're like, I'm the reporter. I'm this person. I'm that person. And they're That's all right. like doing something different. And it, you see this That's one right. shot and you're like, holy shit, man, Brian De Palma, <laughs> like you're really yeah, good man. at this. <laughs> yeah. And, this was just a whole new world. And when it was hard, I appreciated it because I was like, this should be hard. This is, this is crazy Yeah, <laughs> that what we're trying to pull off, this is a big swing. It should be challenging. And I kind of really reveled in that and appreciated that. Um, so between Parks and Party Down, you are not just a veteran of, you are one of the, the key players in two of the all-time great ensemble hang shows of certainly of this century. And oh, uh, this just had so much chemistry and it's such a pleasure to be with and to be around. And I'm wondering how those experiences and skills were maybe brought to bear with specifically the MDR group. Because in the midst of this large canvas that Ben is 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 painting, you four in particular, you Britt Lauer, John Turturro, and Zach Cherry have to perform, an, you know, uh, like you're a basketball team that, that can move the ball around. You have to have your own rhythms and your own experiences and bring your own thing to make it sing. And I wondered what that yeah. was like on the smaller scale uh, while making this yeah. show. By the way, just to answer a kind of part of your earlier question about, like, what was it like walking into this large world early on when, after I got the job and Ben was like, so we're thinking about, you know, figuring out the rest of the cast. And I, and I was like, Oh, for Irving, um, I have an idea. I, I saw someone, uh, it's a guest spot on billions. I thought they were really good. And he was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's a good, that's a great idea. I'll, I'll, I'll check them out. I was thinking John Turturro. And I was like, <laughs> okay, why don't you go ahead and cast the show? Uh, <laughs> Just the scale I'm thinking on is is just not the same. Um, sorry, what? You, the, but but then uh, it's Turturro doing something we've never seen him do before, and seeming yeah. like to be loving it, and the energy that oh, he man. brings. You know, like you walk out of the bathroom and he comes around the corner. Uh, yeah. it's, it's electric. But it, but the question nice, was more specifically great. about the four of you building your oh, sure. relationship and chemistry within the larger controlled uh, visual universe of Severance. Right. Yeah. Uh, I I think that was part of. Uh, Ben's thinking was the kind of 
workplace comedy vibe is a, f- a fun way in to this world. And I think me having been a, a part of it um, in, a, in a couple of shows sort of uh, helped with that kind of the forming of that vibe for him. Uh, and I think it is, it's a, it's a kind of a comfortable uh, place for the audience to sort of enter the world. And then uh, let that kind of percolate a little bit. And then you start kind of feeling something a little more sinister lurking underneath it and something a little unsettling and weird. Uh, and then kind of s- sort of an entree into the, uh, into the world. And so as far as the four of us sort of finding that rhythm together, uh, it did, it did take a couple of days because it's not a loose improv show. It just isn't every word is so important and is there for a reason. So it was a matter of finding that, that feeling and that rhythm together um, without going off on little, you know, tangents and runs and bits uh, on camera anyway. It's not, uh, there's nothing particularly meta about the show, but I do get a kick out of the fact that both, you know, you're aware of this and Ben is clearly aware of this too, the effect it would have on the audience to have you as a performer who has now, as I was referring to, twice been America's most popular coworker, uh, yeah. showing Heli how to do this absolutely <laughs> terrifying, mindless numbers crunching. You know, you have a yeah. tone in your voice and a smile on your face where I was like, I... I've watched TV for a decade. I'd love to work with this guy. What's yeah. So what if the numbers are a little scary? What he's saying makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. No. Um, I was curious, you, you know, you mentioned Totoro, Adam, and I, I would imagine that you probably don't get very starstruck very often, but I would imagine it would be pretty hard not to be around yeah. Christopher Walken and John Turturro. And at what point do you just like say you were in the fucking deer hunter man like, yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. up with that <laughs> yeah i, I w- with Totoro, uh it was i waited a while yeah. um i waited until i felt like we were friendly and i could maybe even friends you know i mean we were making the show for nine ten months so i i waited a while before i told him you know, I went to see Mac opening night in 1992. <laughs> I, I did his his scene in the in the uh, walk in freezer and do the right thing in acting class in high school. Uh, and you know, he's ju- he's he is one of our great actors and has been for a long time and is just still so curious and dedicated to to his work he's and and just a lovely lovely guy so yeah it took a while and as far as walking goes i don't think i would ever get to be uh comfortable uh, <laughs> around christopher walken um he's you know and such a sweet guy you know actually my first day working with john Turturro and christopher walken the night before i was so excited Tomorrow morning, I'm working with John Turturro and Christopher Walken. Uh, I had worked with John maybe one or two days. It was like six weeks into the shoot, and and I'd seen him. But this was actual where Anne Walken was going to be there. And I, I even took a photo of the call sheet and sent it to a friend. I'm like, guess what I'm doing tomorrow? <laughs> but I was so fucking excited that I couldn't get to sleep. Finally, like I, I was getting picked up at like, I don't know, 5 40 let's say something like that 
in the morning and finally got to sleep at like two just because I couldn't sleep. Sick. <laughs> so I'm getting picked up at 5.40. I wake up to pounding on my door at 7.30, right? Oh, no. The stage is 45 minutes away. I'm very, I, I'm late enough that they had time Scott to send come someone out of his down. trailer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I, I was running around my apartment, just grabbing stuff to get ready, crying. I was so <laughs> horrified. Oh, it's the worst. That, oh my God. It is, you want to disappear. So I got there and had to approach them and, I mean, there could not be a worse way to uh, to start. So on top of everything else, I now had to earn back some sort of uh, respect with, uh, they were both very, very kind about it. And, you know, it ends up happening to everyone. But for the rest of the shoot, I had like three alarm clocks <laughs> next to my bed. A Adam, we don't usually do this on the show, but we have John Turturro here to confirm whether or not you're his <laughs> oh, friend. Fantastic. Um, he's been listening. We're going to have yeah. him... Yeah. Um, we, uh, we, uh, there's plenty more to ask about severance, but there's obviously a lot of mystery, uh, still to come and episodes to come. So I did want to take a little bit of the time you've been generous with to ask about some other long gestating projects, including the one we've been referring to, which is, which is Party Down, which, uh, yeah. one of the great shows of the 21st century, um, Thanks. as you said recently on TV, perhaps a little more popular now than when it was on stars the first time, My, um, just a, just a smidge, um, when your very first answer, you were talking about how Ben Stiller called you about a cool project five full calendar years ago. And I feel like this is just a yeah. part of working in Hollywood. You hear something, you get excited, but you can't get too excited yeah. because there's always something else in front of you. What has it been yeah. like living with the specter of potentially, maybe, someday, one day, doing more episodes of Party Down for a decade? In the fact that it is actually now happening, you must still be a little bit incredulous. Yeah, it's really weird. I mean, I think when you came to the park set, Andy, like, what was that, 2011? 2012? Yes, it was, 20, it was like January, it was March 2012. So it was, that was 2012. 10 years ago. Yeah. I think we talked about it then. I mean, at least the yep. Party Down movie, which was a real thing for a while that I was asked about in every interview was this <laughs> phantom Party Down movie. And it it, it was kind of, in its beginning stages for a while. Uh, and But then petered out, and I think it's probably good that it petered out ultimately because I think part of what's great about the show is the genius of the idea the, uh, that the guys had, which is one party per episode. And so a movie would break up that structure and you'd have to come up with a, you know, a three-act, arc and you know i guess you could put three parties together but there would still have to be some anyway um doing more episodes is the way to go i think and um and yeah we would kind of email about it every couple of years for the last 12 years and uh and i guess it was pre-pandemic or maybe during i think it was during the pandemic Rob and Dan and John Enbaum and Rudd and I just started sort of emailing back and forth like maybe, yeah, because uh, there was this vulture thing mm -hmm. in like 2018 where the cast was there and everyone on stage said if it came back around, they were in. And so I think that kind of inspired John to get thinking on ideas and 
And then during the pandemic, we kind of got serious about it and stars got serious about it and all just sort of came together as far as working out everyone's schedule. It was just a miracle that we were able to uh, work out as many as we did. So I know that you're filming now that's in production. It's a real thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, can I give you, you may have heard it on the podcast, but can I give you my 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 zag, my take on this? Because I know yeah. there was some concern that when it was announced that almost everyone's involved and Lizzie due to scheduling was not able to come back. Yeah. My yeah. take, and you can, you don't, we don't want spoilers. I just want your, you know, maybe almost as a fan yourself. Understood. I would love to, I would love to see Lizzie back in the show. I'd love to see you guys back together. You were wonderful together. But kind of for a show that it is about disappointment on a kind of granular level, I think yeah. it's kind of exciting that your character, I mean, it's not going to be like a tidy, necessarily, as far as I know, a tidy romantic conclusion. There's not like one true pairing kind of thing, which I think makes sense for what the show was. So I am I know this is heresy. I'm kind of more excited about the opening wow. up of what it could be. What do you sure. think about this? <laughs> I think that if you're looking for examples of uh, disappointment and letdowns, uh, you won't be disappointed by the <laughs> new season of Party Down. <laughs> Put that on the poster. <laughs> Disappointments and letdowns. Welcome to Party Down. And you wonder why the ratings were what they were the first time. No, we're good. <laughs> That's this right. This is what we want. Speaking uh, of disappointment, are you personally disappointed that over the last 10 years, as everybody asks you about Party Down, not enough people ask you about whether we're going to get a Pat Anderson spinoff from Eastbound and Down? Oh man, Pat Anderson, what a guy. <laughs> what a king. I was just doing uh, something recently and I saw that scene. I had not seen it for years <laughs> where I'm sitting. It's not the scene where we talk about the Jonas Brothers. It's one where I'm sitting with Jody Hill at rehab. Yeah. And I tell him, I, I, I want to apologize for sleeping with his wife, but I get the name wrong and it turns out it's his, it's his it's the, it's sister. It's is that what it is? You, you is apologize other for sleeping with a sister. But and it turns out it's his wife. It's his That's right. And his sister watched. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, yeah. it was funny because we just talked to Danny McBride for Righteous Gemstones. So oh, cool. I was going down a, ra- a YouTube rabbit hole of, of Eastbound clips because of it. And I came across a outtake of you guys. It's you, Danny, and Matthew McConaughey. And McConaughey is doing yeah. like warm-ups like it's in between takes and uh-huh. he's doing like uh-huh. hip, hip, huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and you are just you're fucking so straight face I just don't <laughs> even know how you did it or maybe you were just in the zone and you were like Pat has my undivided attention as an actor but like meanwhile McConaughey's like looking at a business card and just going humana, humana, humana. Yeah. Uh, was that like a common thing for, for McConaughey? I don't know uh, <laughs> but were Danny and I kind of looking at each other? A little I rem- bit, but you were like yeah. you were like in and out of like breaking, but you were like, I'm waiting for the like we're about to roll. Like, let's go. Yeah. I was like, I was not gonna make him feel weird about doing his thing. I was but I was also like, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> Cause Danny and I were would glance at each other every when, when he was, because he did, you know, he was doing that before. T- everyone has their thing, and I sure totally respect it. You should but see we me would before look at the pot. But there was also this feeling, because this is pre um, Dallas Buyers Club McConaughey. It was in this period when he w- had become sort of this this figure, like this 
like almost Brando-ish. Like he walked on the set and everyone was just like, holy shit, it is Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) I know they would do that now, but it was different then. It was pre-Oscar, pre-kind of new phase. um, Where he was like a mythic. Bongo era, right? Yes, it was more like bongos and- and, um, and, He was allergic uh, to shirts. There you go. No shirts, bongos. He was like this mythic figure. He was like a, a Jeff Bridges and Lebowski type um, figure. Anyway, uh, like he had mystical powers or something. Um, <laughs> so it was it was incredible uh, doing that. I couldn't believe I was in Puerto Rico with Matthew McConaughey and <laughs> Danny McBride at a baseball stadium. Which. By the way, that sounds like the greatest long weekend ever, <laughs> regardless of whether there were cameras. That sounds pretty good. It was it was crazy. It was really fun. So now's the time, I think, that, that at least two of the three of us have been looking forward to the most, which is we have to talk a little bit. Uh, we have to talk alt rock a little bit. Um, on yeah. the podcast. We have to, we, we have to, we have to claim our mantle. Don't excise me from this narrative, man. Like, I don't let, do, let, do, let me and Adam have this. Okay. No, this yeah, is we're how, no, Andy this is and I Chris, the two out of the three? <laughs> no, Chris is, this is why Chris and I are friends. This is a very safe space. We should preface this by saying that you and Scott Ackerman hosted your own podcast pretty much on this topic. Uh, are you talking REM Re Me, which is yeah. available to be listened to. But yeah. so for people who haven't listened to it yet, I'm going to start with a big question. And then yeah. we could we could we could trickle down a little bit. Sure this has come up in dribs and drabs whenever we talk about music, which is either too much or not enough, depending on literally which <laughs> listener you're speaking to. Has there ever been a bigger, better, and more important band in rock history than REM who seems to have left such a small cultural footprint? And what happened? I know you guys have talked about this a little bit, and I know you think about it, but do you have a particular take on why this is? Because it 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 boggles the mind. It, when Chris and I met 25 years ago. You, everyone had an opinion about REM. They were one of the biggest bands in the world. And now I, you don't yeah. hear them in contemporary music in a way that is disappointing. Yeah. Um, they were the biggest band in the world for probably two, three years there. Like from sure. out of time through Monster, like, holy shit, they were huge. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because you say cultural footprint and you think about the hits they've had and the term the end of blah 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 as we know it you see it in newspaper headlines right shiny happy whatever is still thrown out there in infinite ways as just sort of a phrase that we mm-hmm. that we all know and it's kind of gone on to mean different things so that sort of footprint they're kind of in they're sort of just kind of permanently tattooed on culture in a certain way. But as far as being revered like the Rolling Stones or one of these other kind of giant bands right. uh, from the past, you're right. There's some weird slipperiness with REM where they've sort of, and maybe it's because the post Bill Berry years weren't as popular mm-hmm. as as the uh, as the other ones or as um as culturally paid attention to <laughs> as I, the uh pre years what what's your take i, I, I think it? they also just didn't play ball i mean they didn't they yeah. if they had kept doing reunion tours or playing stadiums right. or whatever mm-hmm. that would 
that would be a different thing that could have been successful in that way. They didn't want to do it. And I, I just, that's right. I find one of the, the strangest cultural divides to try to communicate from either side of was just how important they were probably to all three of us in a way of being like, oh, this is a band that is small. That's just for me. Oh, now they're for everybody. Oh, and they're still great and decent yes. and, you know, admirable and what that meant for us as fans of things to watch that trajectory, you know, and that's right. In a time when selling out, was terrible or bad, but how somehow they kept integrity and kept making good music and what that felt yeah. like. It, it, it felt like an inclusive uh, uh, rocket ship to be on when suddenly, because I, I became a fan around Green and then right, just in time for just in time for everything else. Um, yeah. It but, was fun being a huge fan of the biggest band in the world. Like that was, that was, a, since I wasn't, you know, a fan of like reckoning and stuff. Cause I was just a little kid. Once I kind of became a teenager and tuned into them around one, I love, it was fun. Like seeing the world kind of, you know, really go after and pay attention to this band. Um, and then I found myself in the post Bill Berry years trying to sell everyone on REM <laughs> yeah. as if they were some new unknown band. Like, no, up is incredible. You have to listen to, um, uh, and I, I think their last two albums were, were really great too. So I feel like they collapsed and they, they ended. Yeah. Yeah, it really and, is. But, but look at Chris right now. Chris had chronic town in kindergarten. No, that's not like, what I was going to say. Uh, I, was jumpers. I was going to tell you guys that I, I, I often will like when I'm getting into a new band, go to like their Spotify page. And at the bottom, they'll have like playlists that they've curated you know, like playlists that they've put together. And I have noticed yeah. anecdotally a new adventures and hi-fi revival coming our way. Oh, Just really? like that popping up in a lot of like newer bands being like, this is what we were listening to in the studio or whatever. And I was like, it's, it's here. I feel it. It's out there. I That's feel it, cool. it could happen maybe. But Chris, you I have more a theory like a, about that. Sorry, oh, go ahead. Go. No, a theory is better than me making fun of Chris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, save it because I want to hear it. Um, I feel like if they released Electrolyte as the first single on that record, it would have been a completely different reception. Yeah. Yes. Rather than Ebo the Letter. The crowd-pleasing Ebo the Letter. The, 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 the Patti Smith black and white. Yeah, right. Yeah. It sort of makes sense because they just it's a complete change-up from Monster, which makes sense. But Electrolyte is just like such a bullseye. Uh, it would have gotten radio play and stuff. It, it just sort of... I feel like that was just the bumpy start that that uh, kind of inevitably that album was going to be underappreciated. Yeah. But also, isn't that our 2020s brain? Because at the time, you know, it was just like, and look at these, look at these motherfuckers. They won't play ball. Like they just had the biggest yeah. records in the world. And now they're bringing Patty Smith out for like, a dirt. It's like that would know? have been like releasing Night Swimming or something. You know what I mean? Like it was just yeah. such like yeah, a beautiful poppy. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I wasn't really going to drag Chris, but I did feel like it was worth noting, and I wondered where you fell on the spectrum, Adam. Like, Chris, wasn't you two more of your your gateway drug for for the alt rock nation than REM? Well, I I kind of got into REM weirdly through the reverse stream of getting into Pavement and finding out that Pavement oh, was obsessed with REM. So that's oh, how yeah. I kind of went back to early REM. But in terms of like, I think just because of my age or whatever. But like, yeah. Bad and Joshua Tree and then Octung Baby. Oh, yeah, like man. The ones that, yeah. My, uh, my high school best friend, well, friend, best friend since kindergarten and I were both REM obsessives. And um, we made our moms take us on a spring break trip to Athens, Georgia from Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, fun. <laughs> the year out of time came out. And 
still the most starstruck I've ever been was we went to like the tourist office and we found out the woman there was Burtis Downs's mother. And Burtis oh Downs was God. the band's lawyer at the time. And yeah. so this is this is still the level is. of dorkiness. Yes, exactly. And I was like, you you know Michael Stipe's attorney? I mean, that's I have, a different level of I have Burtis Downs business card right over there. <laughs> Just in case. We, yeah, you never know, guys. You need a <laughs> when we interviewed Michael Stipe and Mike Mills, uh, we all went out to dinner afterwards and Burtis Downs was there and he gave me his business card. And I was just like, you have no idea when I was 19, <laughs> having your business card would have been uh, dangerous. So you had a Chris Farley moment, like Chris Farley interview moment. You've, you've broken bread with Mike and Michael of the band. What yeah. what was, if you're comfortable sharing it, what what was the, the dorkiest thing that you couldn't help yourself from saying? Oh, man, doing? it was, you know, we we also, before R.E.M., we had the, the, the same podcast about you 2 and ended yeah, up interviewing yes. the, the whole band. And and I, I've never listened to that interview because <laughs> it's it's got to, it, I know it's embarrassing. All my That's questions. That's like Pat Anderson footage for you. It's just like, you can't, you can't, you can't look at yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, it's problematic. Um so yeah, so we did the interview, and and then afterwards went out to dinner, and I think Michael Stipe really kind of knew the level of fan I was because we all walked in to the restaurant, and there's a big table, and there's that moment of okay, where's everyone gonna gonna sit? That little lull before someone yeah. just goes for it and and scoots in. Are we breaking up the couples or not? Like, yeah, what's going yeah. on here? And Michael just said. We, there was that lull, and then he just turned to me and goes, Adam, how about you sit in between me and Mike? And I was like, <laughs> so You got to sweet. be the middle. Sure. From Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll sit between you guys. And so we were on like a, it was a, uh, a uh, like a booth. So I was in between the two of them and uh, just asked them whatever I wanted. And it was, it was, it was great. Tried not to be too much of a, of a, of an idiot, but. It was really, really fun. They're really, you know, as you, um, as as we've all gleaned over the years, they're lovely, good guys. It's just, it's just a different. You learn, I guess, you sort of appreciate this more as 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 you get older. That people are just wired differently and want different things out of their careers and their talent. And and they didn't want to write the music for a Spider Man musical, you know. And I, there's <laughs> yeah. and no dig at, at Bono and Edge for yeah. doing that. They always want to keep doing the next biggest thing. And it's that's okay right to say no. We, we did the things we wanted to do. They just they just stopped, and I believe them when when they say they're never going to uh, reunite. I I I still can't. You think you think it'll it. happen? You don't think it'll but like I, I, like an acoustic performance for like a charity at some point? Like I think that'll happen, right? I think they they have done it for a wedding, like a wedding of a friend it, or something. I think they've done it. Yeah, yeah. but it so wasn't recorded all, or anything. So what you're saying is we all need to get divorced and remarry. <laughs> Let's and get married. Somehow we can get, get married, married right it. now. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, man, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. You've been so generous with your time. Oh, you guys, I, I really love the show. I, I You guys have such great taste and like Northwater and Station Eleven. Yes. These are shows that I discovered because you guys, I just love, uh, love, love the show. And so keep up the, the great work. Thank, Thank you so you. much, man. Chris, this is your audience. You've got someone to got, watch the Northwater. This Water. is the one other the guy that likes Northwater. Yeah, it's so criminally underappreciated. Like why Colin Farrell didn't get every award. For, I mean, that's a, I that is a performance, man. It's great. Well, 
I, I was going to make a polar bear joke, but then I realized, unlike Chris Sperling, <laughs> The Untouchables, I'm not going to do it. So we'll leave it at that. Adam, thank you. Come on again sooner next time. Oh, we'll yeah, absolutely. Anytime, guys. <laughs>